All right. Good morning. So here, here's a handout for you, sir. Is your wife gonna join too? No, she's okay. Changing. No worries. Oh, actually, she might have to. Okay, I'll I'll grab you another handout. Um, if anyone else comes in, you can point them up here. All right. Thank you. So we are in. Yeah, absolutely. So welcome. This is class two of our series on how to grow as a Christian. This morning, we're going to be talking about all of life worship. Uh, Arnie and I are going to be teaching this class together, switching off week by week. So we're also, um, we're going to be following very closely the, uh, uh, yeah, basically a, a Sunday school series from Capitol Hill Baptist Church. So uh, yeah, I want to give credit where it's due. And if you like something, it's probably because of that great curriculum. If, if something confused you, it's probably because I tried to change something. So... Anyway, this morning we're going to talk about worship, and specifically the title of the class being All of Life Worship. What do we mean by all of life worship? So I want to start out and ask you guys a simple question. How often do we worship God every week? Go for it. Should be in like every single thing that we do. It's not limited yeah. to just like coming to corporate worship on Sundays, but in all that we do, whether it's cooking, cleaning, going mm. to work, um, we should worship the Lord because He's the one who's given us the gifts in the first place. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Anyone want to add to that or disagree? I would just say not as often as we should. Like she said, like everything should be worship. Yeah. I think it's probably by seven, but for sure in my life, not nearly as much as worship as should be. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, I think it's, it's crazy to think of the depth of our sin and that like God is worthy of all of our worship, all of our love, all of um, our art to love him with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and yet there's not been a moment in my life where I have loved him as he truly deserves. And so that, that like, grows me in gratitude for his grace in the gospel, because um, it's, like, it's not like I've ever rendered to him what he deserves, yet in Christ, uh, he's reconciled me to himself. So yeah, I, I, what you guys both said was really helpful. I actually don't love the question, because there's two different ways we can talk about worship. Uh, so how you answer the question depends on like what sense you, you're talking about worship in. So, for example, we can talk about worship in a broad way, and in that way, it's like yeah, all of life is worship, uh, and you know I think that's what you're getting at, Crystal. But there's also a way that we can talk about worship that's more narrow. And so uh, I'm pulling from a Ligon Duncan article here, but he was really helpful in how he said that. The Bible indicates that worship is both a specific activity and a way of life. So worship as an activity, uh, specific activity, we're talking about like public worship as we gather as a church or family worship. Uh, we, we worship God as a family or even private worship or what sometimes we call quiet times, which I'm not crazy about that. I think we could just call it private worship, but I won't find you if you say quiet time. It's okay. Um, but anyway, so worship as a way of life, on the other hand, that's, that's, I think, what we mean when we say all of life worship. So 
I want to have both of those categories in place. And I want to kind of unpack them. Like, let's, let's talk about public worship, family worship, and private worship. So public worship, or also, also known as congregational or corporate worship, that's when we gather as a church. It's when God's people gather in his name to hear from his word in reading and preaching and to respond to him with our prayers, praises, confession, and thanksgiving. It's in public worship that we actually get to experience his presence in a special way as we gather in his name as his people for the purpose of worshiping him as he is commanded. So in public worship, the word is rightly preached. The sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism are rightly administered. And it's all under the guidance of qualified shepherds. So Psalm 100 verse 2 and Hebrews 10 25 would both be examples in the Bible that are referring to that corporate public aspect of worship. And I think, I, yeah, I, I think it's worth pausing here because especially as American evangelicals, we're going to be pulled towards thinking about our spirituality in a, in a more individualistic way. But I think we need to return to seeing the local church as like the primary means of God's grace. It's, it's the primary means that he uses in the life of the believer to strengthen us, to grow us in grace as we week in and week out get to hear his word preached, uh, get to take the Lord's Supper, get to, get to fellowship with the saints in, um, in prayer and praise. So yeah, I want to I wanna always encourage us to be less individualistic in how we think about the Christian life. I'm sorry, are we out of handouts? Okay. Josiah wasn't taking notes? He hadn't already filled it out? Okay. I guess you can have my, my two-year-old son's notes. All right. So, does anyone want to add anything to corporate worship? I think I would just say that, uh, you know, the, the corporate worship sort of sets the tone for the week. It mm. refreshes us, like fills us up, mm. hearing the word preached and That's good. receiving mm. and taking of the sacraments. Um, that sort of like fills us up to get through the rest of the week and be able to worship in our daily life. Mm. And just, mm. just, it's just very, very uh, important for us. Mm. Just to think that. Yeah, amen. Thank you. Sorry, late, but um, something about the corporate thing. I read a book when I was in a church that was spinning off into the modern disco lights, mm. the whole thing. And uh, a line from Warren Wiersbe has stuck with me that there is a witness in worship mm. that if I'm worshiping at home, I'm missing witnessing my brothers. I'm hearing my brothers and sisters sing. I'm seeing what the Holy Spirit's moving in them. And there's a witness to that, or they're witnessing my worship. And and together, you know, there's like individual coals pushed together to make a a, Mm. a brighter fire. That you don't get that just sitting home in front of your TV watching a a church service. That there's a witness in the worship uh, as we witness each other Mm. uh, before the Lord. Yeah, amen. That's really good. Good. So yeah, next, just a real quick touch on family worship. Family worship, this is ordinarily going to be led by fathers, and it's when the family gathers to read God's word, to sing, and to pray. This is a way of orienting the entire family towards God, 
praising his name together in song because he's worthy, calling on his name together in prayer because he takes care of us, and hearing from him together in his word. And so family worship is a way of obeying Ephesians 6.1 to, to bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Even if you don't have kids or are empty nesters, it's, it's a way of saying with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so the goal of family worship is, is primarily to give to God the praise that is due his name as a family. But secondarily, it should also help us establish homes and families that are God-centered and that are promoting this all-of-life worship, where we seek to glorify and obey God in all that we do, um, whether we're changing diapers or going about our day job. Um, and family worship should also help prepare us for uh, the, the pinnacle that is the, the Lord's Day worship every week. Um, so I was curious, do any of you guys have any positive examples of family worship that you grew up with? I'd love to hear. Yeah. If growing up your families did a good job of that, or if you've seen any positive examples, I'll be encouraging to hear about. I, I got one. When yeah. we were growing up, my our dad would come home and, and basically he was, uh, there were three boys, so he would play with us for a couple hours, we'd do sports, play ping pong and stuff, and then uh, interspersed with supper and everything, he would um, do some Bible study. And mm. so it, it, we, would, we would go from this like intense sports competitive stuff and then straight into studying the Word. And, and it was great. Wow. We did that all the time. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah, anyone else? Any other positive examples? Yeah, I, I didn't grow up with great rhythms of family worship myself, but I mean, let's let this be an encouragement to us to... If we didn't experience it ourselves, like, let's not let our kids have the same experience. Um, and so, yeah, let's not let, let's break that pattern as, as families or as, as individuals. So, yeah, Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 8, if you want to write that down, that's, that's another great passage that supports the idea of family worship. Um, actually, would someone be able to read it? Could somebody look up real quick Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 8? shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, that's so good. All right, and then finally, <clears throat> the third category of like worship is a specific act we can talk about private worship or personal worship, secret worship, or the dreaded quiet time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this is also taught and modeled throughout scripture as well. Um, you know, this is what Daniel got thrown into the lion's den for, essentially. He refused to quit his practice of praying to the Lord three times daily in private, and he got thrown to the, to the lions. Um, so Jesus also gives us examples of this when he would draw away into desolate places to pray. And he, he also instructed his disciples in this. He said, don't be like the Pharisees who 
go out on the street corner and they make loud prayers because they want to look really, they want to look like spiritual Jedis. He says, no, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father in secret. So private worship. So finally, those are the three spe- uh, specific ways of talking, or that, that's worship as an activity. But now if you want to just talk about worship as a lifestyle, that's, that's worship in all of life. And I think a great banner verse for that is 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Does anyone want to read it or recite it? All right, we'll have someone read it. I'll just read it real quick. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So we, we bear God's image. So in all of life, we are called to image him as we faithfully fulfill our various callings, whether it be students, parents, husband, wife, uh, plumber, coach, teacher, whatever it may be. Um, how can we glorify God, worship him in all of life? So that's some foundation I wanted to lay uh, because I think the question of like how often do we worship God is confusing because we, if, if we don't get that straight, we could fall into one of uh, two different ditches. I think one ditch we could fall into is thinking like just Sunday mornings or quiet times are the only like holy time in our life where that's the only time that we actually worship. That's the only time where we can really glorify and obey God. And that's not true. Like, we don't want to just be, all right, I spent my time in the Word. I went to church. Check. Now I'm just going to, like, live and think like the rest of the world. Of course, that's not right. But at the same time, it would also be very wrong if we, if we thought of corporate worship with the local church as just unimportant, just kind of the same as all the rest of our life. Because that's not true either. It's a special time of communion with God when we gather in his name with his people for the means of grace. We are spiritually strengthened. And also, I think that error is what leads the kind of like thought of like, oh, you know, like all of life is worship. So like surfing on Sunday morning, going to church, same thing. I can worship God either way. And it's true. You can you can uh, you can enjoy the good gift of surfing, but probably shouldn't do it on Uh, on the Lord's Day during the time when we get the privilege of gathering with God's people. So we're to see also, I think this speaks to uh, maybe kind of to what Chris said earlier, but we're also like, or no, maybe not. Hold that thought. But anyway, I wanted to also point out we're deceiving ourselves. I think a way that we can deceive ourselves is if we just tell ourselves, oh, I know I'm neglecting like the private worship. I'm neglecting... uh, regular attendance at church, but I'm worshiping God in all of my life. That's, if we're going to really neglect uh, the specific acts of worship, we're probably uh, deceiving ourselves to say, I'm, I'm just worshiping God with all of my life. Because um, the worship God, the worshiping of God in all of life flows from the corporate worship, from uh, the time in prayer and in the word with his people. So, all right. The class today has two goals. That was, that was my intro because I wanted to have those categories straight. Before we go on, any questions or thoughts? Okay. So two goals. To hear a little bit about what the Bible says about worship. I don't want, I, I'm not going to claim to be uh, – yeah, we're not going to cover all the Bible says about worship. No way. 
can all do that. Uh, and we're also going to try to begin to understand the relationship between worship and spiritual disciplines because some of the following classes are going to get more into that. Right, Arnie? Yes. That's my co-teacher. <laughs> all right. So let me ask you guys, what would you say our primary purpose is? Yay, that's great. That's, that's good. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to beat the Westminster Shorter, question one. The chief end of man, or primary purpose of man, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So, when we think about worship, think about glorifying God, this is our, our basic duty, our basic privilege as God's creation. And notice again, per the Westminster Shorter, worshiping God, glorifying him, that's linked to enjoying him. So we're going to try to just unpack it a little bit more. Um, The Puritan Thomas Watson said that glorifying God consists of at least four things. Appreciation, adoration, affection, and subjection. So appreciation, what he's getting at there is... Appreciation is to glorify God by setting him highest in our thoughts. It's abounding, overflowing, and thanksgiving toward him for what he has done for us in Christ. The hindrance to this would be pride. Because appreciating God, acknowledging him as the giver of all good gifts, acknowledging him as our, our redeemer, that requires us realizing that we're poor, that we're sinful, that we're wretched, uh, that we, we can't save ourselves. So, so in this, we, uh, yeah, the antidote to pride is appreciation. And perhaps this is why Christ began the Sermon on the Mount saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. To be poor in spirit, to admit that we are poor, gives us the chance to set God highest in our thoughts and to abound in thanksgiving toward him. So next is adoration. Just real quick, uh, Watson uh, said that to adore God is to ascribe to him all honor and praise. It's to acknowledge that he alone is worthy of all our reverence and worship. Adoration implicitly obviously requires faith. We must believe that he exists, that he rewards those who seek him. So, yeah. Affection, to love God who we esteem as worthy, as lovely, Affection is loving him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, with our whole person, undivided love. And when our worship lacks this love and esteem for God, it becomes just a a dead work, just formality, going through the motions. And then finally, subjection, to dedicate and submit ourselves completely to God in readiness to serve and obey him in all of life. Any thoughts on Watson's fourfold definition? Would you guys add or tweak anything? Any thoughts? Uh, I wouldn't say I'm adding anything, but uh, for the subjection, just a verse that kind of came to mind is Romans 4, 1 and 2. I mm. to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do mm. not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. By testing, we 
like this objection aspect, it's submitting ourselves, offering ourselves mm. as a living sacrifice. So it's not necessarily what we want to do, but it's kind of our duty. Yeah. Yeah, our whole person, offering up our whole everything. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Yeah, we'll hopefully have some time to maybe maybe look more at that verse later. Thank you. Um, yeah, really good. So, and sorry, I'm. feel free to interrupt and ask a question. I'm going to maybe try to kind of fly, see how much we can get through. So there's a lot. So next I wanted to talk about like, let's stop now before we go on and ask why. Remind ourselves of why. Why should we worship God? Why is it our duty? Why is he worthy of our lives, worthy of our praise? And so let's turn to Revelation 4 and 5 because we get at least two reasons um, from these passages. Could someone please read Revelation 4, 10, and 11? Thank you. Revelation 4, 10, and 11. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. Mm. Amen. Thank you. So, based on those verses... Why should we worship God? Because he's worthy. Yeah, he's worthy. What else? He's created all things. Yes, yes. He's our creator. He's our yeah. Ru- throne. He's, on, he's a ruler. He is, he is mm-hmm. the supreme of all. The, there's none but the greater. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's all good. Yeah. Nothing that we have is ours. It's from him. Mm. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah. God, yeah, he's given us these, he's by grace and it's, yeah, that, that's a great image. Um, yeah, he created all things by, by your will. They exist and were created. Yeah, I think to, in some, every, everything you guys said was really good, but in some, we see here that we, God, is worthy of our worship because he created us. He, he's given us this very life and breath that we enjoy. It would, you know, how, how, how sad, you know, is the picture of, of you know, faithful parents who, who raise, you know, who raise a child, you know, they sacrifice, give them, give them all the nurture and provision in the world and then the child, you know, grows up to just reject them and turn, turn his back on them and ignore them, you know? That's, that is a small picture of what it looks like for us to, to turn our backs on our creator who has given us our very life and breath and, and all good gifts. So he is worthy because he is our creator. Now, uh, can someone please read... Revelation 5, 9, and 10. And they sang in the song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open the seals. And you were selling and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on you. Amen. Thank you. So, according to these verses, 
Why should we worship God? Because he's redeemed us. Yes. Amen. Anything else? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, go for it. Were you going to say something? Sorry. Oh, sorry. You were looking at me like you were about to throw down. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Our redemption. Yeah. So that's so good. So yeah, if I think there's blanks, creator and redeemer, we, we belong to God twice over. And I think that's really amazing to think about because, you know, Adam and Eve pre-fall, they could only know God as their creator. And yet we have this immense privilege of knowing him as both, not only our creator who um, has, has made us and by his grace, let us bear his image by his grace. He's created us, given us life. Like even that is grace. It's not like we deserved to bear the image of the one true God. It's not like we deserve to have life. Even that's grace. And, and we can know him in that way as creator. But then like, think about how much even more mind blowing it is to know him as our redeemer that in, in knowing him as our redeemer, we know the one who not only gives us what we just completely don't deserve, but he doesn't give us what we do deserve. Like we deserve his wrath and curse for our sin. And yet he says in Christ, he cancels that in Christ. He reconciles us to himself. And so we have this twofold, twofold obligation to praise him because he has not only made us, but now he has redeemed us from the wrath that we deserve. Really good. We belong to God twice over. All right. Moving on to the next section to try to understand worship more. We're going to look at three central concepts of worship. Homage, service, and reverence. So, you know, it's not like the Bible gives a dictionary entry for worship. That might be kind of nice, but... It, instead, we, we get to see through, in, in so many, um, like, word pictures, a, a full, robust definition of what it means to worship God. And so, let's, uh, let's talk about a few um, biblical terms. The first one being homage. The Hebrew, wor- the Hebrew verb most commonly translated to worship literally means bend oneself over at the waist. And so this, this gesture is expressing surrender or submission to God as Lord and King. And, and what I thought was really, really interesting is this, is this can be contrasted with how the Israelites were so often referred to as a stiff-necked people. Like their necks were stiff. They would not bow. They would not submit. They would not uh, obey the one who had, redeemed, who had brought them out of Egypt. And so, so first we see that that uh, the Bible describes worship as a, a bending, a expressing submission, homage to the Lord. Second, another Hebrew term often translated to worship literally means to serve. The language of service implies that God requires faithfulness and obedience from his people, and it implies devotion to God in all that we do. All that we do, whether it's taking out the trash, uh, Changing diapers. I'm always thinking, yeah, that's, that's the stage we're at as a family, so I'm thinking about that. 
But yeah, it's, it's worship to God, service to him, and all that we do as stewards, whatever it is we're doing, we are stewards of, of our lives, our time, our talents, our treasure. What did you say? Does that mean you have to have joy when you change diapers? I think that, yes. I thought, Piper, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. I have joy when I do that, right, Anna? I'm just kidding. Um, so hopefully I don't throw a fit. Um, yes, so service. Um, and then finally, there's reverence. There's um, a group of terms are used to indicate fear, reverence, or respect owed to God. And so this idea of reverence involves keeping God's commandments, walking in his ways, um, in, fear, in the fear of the Lord, turning away from evil, and serving him. And so I think this is, this is in uh, Psalm 95.6. Um, this is the idea when it says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Along the lines, yeah. if I could just jump in. I would love, yeah. The, um, this term worship, you see it in, used in older forms. It's interesting because it doesn't always, it isn't always used in, in terms of pure worship to God, but sometimes it's used in terms of reverence towards someone else. Sort of human being, and by Christians. So I, I think somewhere in the King James version, uh, I think Bathsheba it says that she worshipped David. It just means she reverenced him. And in the Book of Common Prayer, the husband is to say, "With all my worldly goods, I need doubt. My body, I worship." And it obviously doesn't mean that he's making her an idol. It means that he's reverencing her and showing respect to her. So just that aspect of it, too, in terms of homage, however how you, you see that reverence toward a, a, someone who you are uh, honoring. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, so we don't, yeah, words have a semantic range and context is going to determine, you know, it's like, uh, otherwise it would be like, oh my gosh, Bathsheba committing idolatry with David. <laughs> yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. Um, yeah. Yeah. When you mentioned about corporate worship and, uh, and individuality, and I think one of the reasons why Christians, modern Christians, have such a hard time with the accepting authority in corporate worship because we've abandoned the whole idea of that, mm. um, which to parents or to mm. the teachers or to whoever. Mm. So now, by the time you're 25 or 30, the idea of paying homage to anybody has completely been stripped from you. Mm. And now wow. you have to try to, you know, God has to figure out how to obviously got nothing to do with You know what I mean? You know what I mean? So, yeah. so it, it makes it harder. Wow. So, so we do have to be careful that we don't miss the principle that there are people we should honor. Right? Mm. Should, mm. You know, that we're, we're equal, but we're not. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. Yeah. That is so, that's such a wise insight. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, our pastors, our parents, people to whom honor is owed in, in God's economy. He has he is commanded this honor, this, this respect, this submission to, to even other humans. Like, yes, our, our pastors are under shepherds, 
they're under the Lord Jesus Christ, but they are shepherds just the same. Um, good. All right, so now we're going to talk about, obviously, like, acceptable worship is only possible in and through Christ. It, acceptable worship means approaching or engaging with God on the terms that, on his terms, and in the manner that he makes possible. So true worship is revealed by God and it's made possible by his redeeming work. And so we want to talk about revelation and redemption. Because we're able, apart from these two things, we would not be able to worship him. We would not, we would have no way of knowing the God who created us if he didn't reveal himself to us. And we would have no way of offering worship to him that was not an abomination if he did not reconcile us to himself in Christ. So, first we're going to look at how God has revealed himself through his word. He's revealed in his word how we are to approach him in worship. It's not arbitrary. It's not something we get to invent and make up. And so, to hammer this point home, could someone please read Leviticus 10, 1 through 3? I have it. Awesome. Thank you. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans. After putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, so why? Why here were Nadab and Abihu consumed? Not worshiping as God prescribed. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. So, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if anyone has more insight into this. Like, you know, I, it's not clear what they were doing or, like, why they were doing this. Like, I don't know if they were just, like, they thought they were being funny or, or if they maybe they like really thought like oh this could be like a sincere way to worship God but like the problem being they were not it was unauthorized a strange fire it was it was not approaching God in the way that he had prescribed the way that he had commanded them on Mount Sinai and so we see here how seriously we need to take the worship of God um, coming to him as he on his terms not our own terms. So it's not enough to just have sincerity. Worship must also conform to God's commands. Who knows? Maybe Nadab and Abihu felt sincere, but it was not, that was not enough. Similar to the Old Testament and the New Testament, we also see commands for public worship. For example, if the Bible is clearly to be central to our public worship. In 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul commands Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. I think Ligon Duncan says it really helpfully when he writes that when we gather for corporate worship, it, it, everything's to be centered around the Word. We're, we're reading the Bible. We're hearing the Bible. We're hearing the Bible preached. We're praying the Bible, singing the Bible, and we're even in a sense, seeing the Bible in the sacraments as we, as we see baptism in the Lord's Supper. 
Then Don Whitney also writes, he says, Bible reading and preaching are central in public worship because they are the clearest, most direct, most extensive presentation of God in the meeting. In the reading, in the sound preaching of the word, we are hearing from God himself. We are hearing the voice of Christ. That is waiting. That is, that is why Lord's Day worship is, is worthy of our preparation. We should prepare ourselves. Pray, pray for understanding. Pay careful attention to the word that is preached. I think that, that connects with the previous Nadab and Abihu. If you're, the word is our focus, if that, that's, that's our straight edge. We're, we're not going to veer off into man's opinion or mm. man's idea. I'm thinking of in the broader evangelical world. Right now they're big box churches, and it's a glorified TED Talk mm. with the scripture tacked on the end mm. for you. Know, and mm. Ask Jesus in your heart. Yeah. And, and, and it, they go on wild deviations from anything that is biblical, but they still call it worship. But it does not glorify God, and it does not bring the conviction and the, and the salvation. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for sharing. So true. Yeah, so... Two, there's two extremes, I think, that, that can lead away from New Testament worship. One... Well, actually, let me... Let me for, we're kind of dancing around the regular principle. Just to hammer this home, like... We're, we're talking it. Does anyone want to try to define the regular principle? If God has not commanded it, we shouldn't worship him that way. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, scripture must regulate our corporate worship. What we do in corporate worship should be only things that God has explicitly commanded in his word. Um, and that's con- contra to the normative principle, which is that, like, well, as long as the Bible hasn't said, don't do this, then it should be fair game. Um, anyone, yeah, anyone want to add anything to that? I'll just say, uh, somebody once said, um, you may have a better way of doing life and knowing mm-hmm. how to live and all that, but you don't have a universe. It's God's universe. So it's mm-hmm. His way. Like, the Lord Jesus said, um, the Father seeks those who worship Him in the Spirit and in truth. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's the element of fatherhood there too, which is he's a person, and he's put eternity in our hearts so that we would seek after him. Mm-hmm. And so worship is not just this abstract concept of a theological, you know, sum of concepts. It's mm-hmm. you're 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 seeking after someone. It's a mm-hmm. person. Yeah. So it speaks of affection, relationship. And we see that developed in a relationship between a father and a son. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's important to keep in mind as well because it's not just God. It's he is God, yes, but he's a person as well. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, communion with him. Yeah. And so, yeah, just, you know, to, to tie it back to the Nadab and Abihu, it's like they, you could say they had a normative principle uh, of worship. Because they, well, it's like, well, God didn't say we couldn't offer this incense. Uh, or he, yeah, God didn't say we couldn't. And so therefore they went for it, but they learned that no, it's not enough to just do what God has not explicitly prohibited. We need to stick to what he has explicitly commanded. Um, I want to real quick, this might get to what you were saying, Venetius, but there's two extremes that can lead us away from New Testament worship. One is experientialism, 
and another is intellectualism. So I'm going to draw from Packer in his book, A Quest for Godliness, which is great, but I recommend it. Packer is very savage, but in a good way. Like, he's just like, you guys need the Puritans, and it's great. It, like, it, very edifying. Um, but anyway, so, so he describes experientialism in this way. Yeah, uh, it's a long quote, but hopefully we'll get the point. So he says, I, he's speaking of the experientialist, I guess, the person who is prioritizing experiences in worship. He says, their outlook is one of casual haphazardness and fretful impatience, of grasping after novelties, entertainments, and highs, and valuing strong feelings above deep thoughts. They have little taste for solid study, humble self-examination, disciplined meditation, and unspectacular hard work in their callings and their prayers. They conceive of the Christian life as one of exciting, extraordinary experiences rather than of resolute, rational righteousness. They dwell continually on the themes of joy, peace, happiness, satisfaction, and rest of the soul, but they have no balancing reference to the divine discontent of Romans 7, the fight of faith of Psalm 73, or the lows of Psalms 42, 88, and 102. Through their influence, the spontaneous jollity or happiness of the simple extrovert comes to be equated with being a healthy Christian or healthy worship. While the saints of less um, peppy temperament, I guess, the saints of more complex temperament get driven almost to distraction and despair because they're like, wow, I can't bubble over in that same excited manner. Um, so that is the pitfall of experientialism. Any, any thoughts on experientialism? Anyone want to add? Anyone seen that or struggle with that? Kind of this idea of like the Christian life is just a string of mountaintop spiritual highs and you're always chasing that next high. There's no objective truth. Yeah. It's, it's mainly stamped by emotion. Yeah, 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 not being rooted to anything objective. Good, okay, let me real quick move on, because there's also, there's the intellectualist. Maybe that's kind of the flip side, and Packer describes him in this way. He says, constantly they present themselves as rigid, argumentative, critical Christians, champions of God's truth for whom orthodoxy is all, upholding and defending their own view of that truth. Whatever it might be is their leading interest, and they invest themselves unceasingly in this task. There's little warmth about them. Relationally, they are remote. Experiences do not mean much to them. Winning the battle for mental correctness is their own great purpose. So they see truly enough that in our anti-rational, feeling-oriented, instant gratific gratification culture, that conceptual knowledge of divine things is undervalued. Fair. That's true. But they seek with passion to write the balance at this point. And the trouble is that intellectualism expressing itself in an endless campaign for their own brand of right thinking, you know, as if they have the, the, they've cornered the whole market on the truth. Like they, they got all the truth. No one else does. Um, their endless campaign for their own brand of right thinking is almost all they have to offer. It's, it's like it's all they have um, so I think that is very helpful too a anyone want to add to that any, any other thoughts or observations about the pitfall of this rigid cold intellectualism 
my experience, if you will, is that the, the former is something you tend to see in the broader evangelical, non-denominational world, and the latter is something you see in the reformed world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's fair. It's fair. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, we, we don't want to, we need to marry, yeah, this evangelical zeal, warmth, piety with the, the right doctrine. Those, those two should never be put asunder. Yeah. Yeah, good. Um, let's see. We have a few minutes left. So we'll see how much more we can get through. But yeah, it's the Christian life is not a quest for experience or intelligence, even though both of those things are part of what it means to be human, part of what it means to be truly spiritual. Instead, the life of worship is a quest for growing in love for God and relationship with our triune God and in conformity to Christ. And that's not going to be attained by right doctrine alone or by intense experiences. Rather, I love the picture of, you know, often our growth, especially through the ordinary means of grace. Our growth is more like our hair and fingernails growing. Like we might not feel these crazy life-changing feelings every time we sit under the word preached and take the Lord's Supper. Yet we can trust that as we partake in faith, uh, that, that by his spirit, he is, he is growing us slowly, often imperceptibly, but yet truly all the same. Just, just like, you know, we, don't, we can't see our fingernails or our hair grow, but it, it's, ha- it's always happening. We can't observe it. Um, so I think that's, that's better than this idea of like, oh, I'm just got to string together these mountaintop, you know, spiritual high experiences. So, okay, next, um, number two under this section God has revealed himself supremely in his son, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Hebrews 1, 1 to 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So God has fully and finally revealed himself in the person of his son. Jesus Christ needs to be at the center of our thinking about worship. And our worship is made possible by the person and work of Christ. And even, you know, not only does does he make our worship possible, but our worship will for the rest of time remain gospel-shaped because we continue to come to the Father um, in union with his Son. We, we come uh, uh, yeah, by the Spirit uh, through the Son, who, who is our mediator. Um, so worship is gospel-shaped in that way. Next, God has revealed himself through creation. Um, Romans one twenty. can someone read that real quick? namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Yeah. Good. So the beauty of, of nature, 
sunrises, sunsets, crashing waves, like these, these are all things that should evoke our spontaneous awe of God. They, these things do give us a glimpse of his power in, in glory and greatness. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we all know this, but let's pause here and say, why is God's revelation of himself in creation not enough? Yeah, yeah, that's right. No matter how long you contemplate the intricacies of a leaf, you're not going to get from there. You need, we need something more. We need special revelation, not just general revelation, but special revelation. Um, so praise God that he's given that to us in his word. So, um, you know, it's, it's helpful to remember that we know enough from creation alone to render us guilty for not honoring God, not giving him the praise he is due. But we don't, we don't know enough to be redeemed, to be reconciled to God apart from his special revelation. So, um, so yeah, praise, praise him for that. Uh, all right, we need to wrap up. I don't know. I'll have to talk to Arnie. I don't know if it's worth like trying to, yeah, just moving on to the next lesson. Give him another week. We're yeah. we have one speed. Come on. <laughs> You're right. We're going to spend nine years on Romans. So. We might as well spend 20 years on worship. Yeah. Well, thank you guys. Let me, let me close us in prayer. Father, we, we thank you so much that we could consider this topic of worship, uh, both worship as an all-of-life thing and the specific activities of, of corporate worship private worship, Lord, uh, we, we praise you that, that we, through Jesus Christ, we have communion with you. Um, help us to know more all the, the riches and benefits that you've given us in your son. And we pray right now that you would just prepare our hearts uh, to, to hear, hear you um, and, to, and to worship you um, as, we, as we get to, to gather together um, as a local body. Father, would you please accept our worship? Uh, uh, may it be uh, acceptable to you by your spirit um, and through, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And, um, and help us to, to grow in the grace and knowledge of him that we are better able to, to glorify you and worship you in whatever uh, we set our hands to do. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Yeah, thank you, guys. Thank you.